Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 369. Today's big Bible questions, why was the Bible written, and who is the Bride of Christ? Well, happy Wednesday, dear friends. We are in the final countdown for 2021. Only one more episode after today, and then season three launches. Same podcast feed, new title, slightly new format, same host, same focus. So keep that podcast dial right here, because Lord willing, we're going to be daily in 2021 as well. Welcome aboard to new listeners from Maharashtra, India, West Bengal, India, Ontario, Canada, Morocco, and Kansas City, Missouri. For this penultimate day of the year, our readings are Second Chronicles 35, Malachi 3, John 20, and Revelation 21. There is literally something awesome for us to learn in every passage, so we will focus in on every one of them today. But first, a great comment on episode 367 from our old friend, Where, What, Huh? Who writes, Frank Morrison, in his work, Who Moved the Stone, makes an interesting point about the last passage that we discussed. The given accounts harmonize best when we assume that Caiaphas had a midnight meeting with Pilate on the night before, during the time between Judas's departure from the Last Supper and his arrival at the Garden of Gethsemane. In this meeting, it might be supposed that Caiaphas and Pilate reached an agreement about the judgment on Jesus, which was upset by Pilate's wife's dream. This would explain the long delay between Judas's departure and Jesus's arrest, especially odd since Jesus admonished him to go and do it quickly. It also explains why Pilate's wife dreamed of Jesus and sent her alarming note to Pilate along with Caiaphas's curt remark that if he were not a sinner, dot, 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 as though he were expecting Pilate to simply rubber stamp the judgment of the Sanhedrin. Well, that's a great comment as always, WWH, and good insight into John 19 and 21 and the passion of Jesus in the other Gospels as well. Well, in today's reading, there are so many great passages that we are going to focus on all of them, and honestly, we might have a similar situation tomorrow, because just there are great passages that, that we cover at the end of the Bible and at the end of the Gospels tomorrow. Let's start today with our John passage, since it is on the resurrection of Jesus, and then we're going to work our way through the other chapters. In John 20, Jesus is gloriously raised from the dead, and he appears to the disciples. I've often thought that one bit of evidence that the resurrection was factual and historical and not invented by the writers of Scripture is found in the way the Bible treats the accounts of Jesus rising from the dead. The Bible is just so... I don't know, matter of fact about it all. It's not written like fiction with a big flourish when Jesus returns. And that's not to say the Gospels downplay the resurrection exactly. It's just that they don't write it as dramatically as they could have. Even they could have written it more dramatically and not stretched the truth in the least bit. You know, Mary and John, our passage today, Mary hangs around the garden tomb, Jesus speaks to her, and she doesn't even look at him at first, thinking he's the gardener, and then he says her name, she turns around, sees him, and says, teacher, and he basically says, oh, don't hug me yet, because I haven't yet returned to my father, and then Mary goes to the disciples and says, I've seen the Lord. Now, that all happened, I believe, it's just not very dramatic and amazing and tears and all of the kind of things that a Hallmark movie might put in. The gospel writers seem to just take a just-the-facts-ma'am approach to the narrative, and that seems to carry with it quite a bit of genuineness. Let's read the passage, and maybe you can see what I am referring to. 
in John chapter 20, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, Why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing it was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and she told them what he had said to her. When it was evening on the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews, and Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them, even though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. We can certainly imagine the drama, I think, and the feelings of the disciples. You know, they're locked in a room, probably scared to death, and all of a sudden Jesus appears to them, and I suspect I would have had a dramatic uh, reaction to that. Uh, But it seems clear that John just doesn't embellish anything nor play it out for drama and feels. Uh, He just tells us what happened. And so that gets us to our first big Bible question. Why was the Bible written? I think the end of John chapter 20 gives us an excellent answer to the question of why the Gospel of John was written, and I really don't think it is a stretch at all to apply this answer to the entire Bible. 
John 20, 30-31 says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So can you get saved and become a Christian, have faith just by reading the Bible? Well, I think the answer is yes, because the word of God is living and active and is not just ink on a page, but is God breathed good news that points us to Jesus. And if you believe in the good news about, about Jesus, by believing you will have life in his name. And that, my friends, is why we have the word of God. Well, what will we learn from our Chronicles passage? Let's read it and find out. Second Chronicles chapter 35, verse 1, Josiah observed the Lord's Passover and slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their responsibilities and encouraged them to serve in the Lord's temple. He said to the Levites who taught all of Israel the holy things of the Lord, put the holy ark in the temple built by Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, since you do not have to carry it on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Organize your ancestral families by your divisions according to the written instruction of King David of Israel and that of his son Solomon. Serve in the holy place by the groupings of the ancestral families for your brothers, the lay people, and according to the division of the Levites by family. Slaughter the Passover lambs, consecrate yourselves, and make preparations for your brothers to carry out the word of the Lord through Moses. Then Josiah donated 30,000 sheep, lambs, and young goats, plus 3,000 cattle from his own possessions for the Passover sacrifices for all the lay people who were present. The officials also donated willingly for the people, the priests and the Levites, Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiel, chief officials of God's temple, gave 2,600 Passover sacrifices and 300 cattle for the priests. Conaniah and his brothers Shemaiah and Nethanel and Hashabiah, Jael, and Jotzebad, officers of the Levites, donated 5,000 Passover sacrifices for the Levites, plus 500 cattle. So the service was established. The priests stood at their posts, and the Levites in their divisions, according to the king's command. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs, and while the Levites were skinning the animals, the priests splattered the blood they had been given. They removed the burnt offering so that they might be given to the groupings of the ancestral families of the lay people to offer to the Lord. According to what is written in the book of Moses, they did the same with the cattle. They roasted the Passover lambs with fire according to regulation. They boiled the holy sacrifices in pots, kettles, and bowls, and they quickly brought them to the lay people. Afterward, they made preparations for themselves and for the priests, since the priests, the descendants of Aaron, were busy offering up burnt offerings in fat until night. So the Levites made preparations for themselves and for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. The singers, the descendants of Asaph, were at their stations according to the command of David, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthon, the king's seer. Also, the gatekeepers were at each temple gate. None of them left their tasks because their Levite brothers had made preparations for them. So all the service of the Lord was established that day for observing the Passover and for offering burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. The Israelites who were present in Judah also observed the Passover at that time in the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. No Passover had been observed like it in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. None of the kings of Israel ever observed a Passover like the one that Josiah observed with the priests, the Levites, all of Judah, the Israelites who were present in Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the eighteenth year of Josiah's reign, this Passover was observed. After all this that Josiah had prepared for the temple, King Necho of Egypt marched up to fight at Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to confront him. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, 
What is the issue between you and me, king of Judah? I have not come against you today, but I am fighting another dynasty. God told me to hurry. Stop opposing God who is with me. Don't make him destroy you. But Josiah did not turn away from him. Instead, in order to fight with him, he disguised himself. He did not listen to Necho's words from the mouth of God, but went to the valley of Megiddo to fight. The archers shot King Josiah, and he said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. So his servants took him out of the war chariot, carried him in the second chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem. Then he died, and they buried him in the tomb of his ancestors. All of Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah chanted a dirge over Josiah, and all the male and female singers still speak of Josiah in their dirges today. They establish them as a statute for Israel, and indeed they are written in the dirges. The rest of the events of Josiah's reign, along with his deeds of faithful love according to what is written in the law of the Lord and his words from beginning to end, are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So it turns out that today's Chronicles lesson is pretty easy to learn and succinct for us to remember. And it is shocking that a king so good and seemingly wise as Josiah is the one that we learn this message from. Uh, Our lesson is, don't pick fights that aren't yours and that God hasn't called you to. This is how Josiah died. He went out and fought King Necho of Egypt, even though King Necho of Egypt at the time was doing God's bidding and God had not called Josiah to that fight. I think for us, we can apply this to online fights as well, like quarrels on the internet and such. We are not, my friends, called to be the great correctors online. The bat signal does not turn on and call all Christians to action when somebody is wrong on the internet, but we are called rather to point people to a great Savior. Next up, Malachi chapter 3. Three, let's read it, and I will reveal to you one of my top five favorite Old Testament passages. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. And like a launderer's bleach, he will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. I will come to you in judgment and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies, because I, the Lord, have not changed. You, descendants of Jacob, have not been destroyed. Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making payments of the tenth in the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. 
Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Amen. So here is my favorite, uh, one of my top five favorite passages in the Old Testament. In response to the people of God muttering and complaining, it says this in verse 16 and 17, at that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies. So this passage shows that God pays attention to our conversation. He knows those whose hearts are fully his. And I believe this passage would give you and I really great encouragement to have godly friends who talk about godly things rather than have all of our conversation rotate around banal pop culture and the news and events of the day. This points us to the blessing of being the people of God, talking about the things of God and sharing our relationship with God and the truth of God with each other. Well, finally, Revelation chapter 21, one of the most hopeful chapters in the entire word of God. So our question for today, who is who is the bride of Jesus? And of course, I'm not talking about his wife when he was on the earth. People for centuries have speculated that Jesus had some sort of relationship with Mary Magdalene, but honestly, there's no evidence of such a thing in the Bible, so I don't think that really happened. Not that it would have been a sin for Jesus to have a relationship with somebody, but I just don't think it happened because there's no hint of that in the Bible. Sounds like an urban legend to me. Instead, it turns out that the bride of Christ is actually something a little different than what we might expect. Let's read Revelation 21 and find out. Verse 1, Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. 
The city had a massive high wall with twelve gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had twelve foundations, and the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which is what the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its light lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen and amen and amen. So before we get back to the bride, I do need to point out verse 4, which is just filled to overflowing with such beautiful hope. It says, He will, God will, wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Amen. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Amen, amen, amen. Because the previous things have passed away. Man, wow. Lord, haste the day for when that happens. So who is the bride of Christ? Well, it turns out it is the new Jerusalem. Verse 10, he carried me away in the city to show to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. This is the bride, the wife of the lamb, says verse 9. And I got to tell you, friends, I am greatly looking forward to the wedding feast of the lamb and the city without temples nor lamps. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Friends, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his grace and his light to shine on you. May he encourage you today with his word and may you remember it and obey it and walk in it and cherish it. Good day to you and Godspeed.